cup-shaped and wrapped in silver foil, it's the Totally Football Show today. Rounding up the round four, madness from Friday at the Emirates and anger at the gap between the two sides, and that was just Martin Keown's scarf, to delight elsewhere from the Dons to the Den. There's news from elsewhere. Monaco and the Notts County owner, both the shocking supporters by taking their Henry out, and a look forward to the midweek action in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Here we go then, listener. And with us today, we have, excitingly, Michael Cox. Hi, James. Nice to see you, Michael. Daniel Storey's also here. Also of the uh, wonderfully alliterative 250 Days Cantonese Kung Fu and the Making of Manchester United. Good morning, James. Good morning to you. And is it Hazel Hamadou to you, David Priest? I don't know, is it? <laughs> that might be a salutation in Swedish. I'm All right, sure. again. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll have to brush up on that one. OK. You're off to Sweden. I am, yes. Going to take my role at Ostersunds. Going to meet them in uh, in Malaga for a training camp on Wednesday nice. and then uh, move over. Are you coaching throw-ins? What, what's your what's your position going to be? Uh, predominantly goalkeeping, but obviously it's a wider role than that these days. Wow. Okay. Is that, that's quite exciting, isn't it? It is. Very exciting. It wasn't it wasn't in my plans, but uh, something that's came up with the blue and I've, uh, everything's right about it. How are their goalkeepers there? Uh, Ali Keiter's, uh he's had a very good few seasons, actually. I yeah. see. Right. Okay. He's going to have an even better couple of seasons, yeah, I'm sure. He, he doesn't know what's going to hit him. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we, you know, I do hope that this isn't going to be the end of our, our journey together, David, but um, we, we'll certainly have a Swedish football correspondent. But this one last time, then, let's rock with a totally football show and an FA Cup weekend that was... Well, here's Jack Tanner saying, is this the best FA Cup since 2007-2008? 2007-2008, of course, when... Um, remind me, David... Barnsley beat Chelsea and Liverpool on the way to the semi-final. Wow. Yeah, it was the year that Paul Smith beat Cardiff in the final, which is it's a funny one because people like giant killings along the way, and then when it gets to the FA Cup final, they're like, oh, Cardiff against Portsmouth? <laughs> I don't know if I want to watch that. So I think it's always nice to have a balance. You know, you want some giant killings, but I do think you want some, some big games at some point as well. Giants getting thin on the ground at the moment in this year's competition. Another five Premier League sides exiting the competition uh, this weekend. Four replays will be taking place next week and there's one more tie from the fourth round to go this Monday night as Barnet take on Brentford. But let's begin our roundup with Friday. Friday's events at the Emirates where Man United made it eight straight victories in all competitions for Solskjaer with a 3-1 win over Arsenal. Michael, do you know when the last time Man United won eight straight games in all competitions was? I guess they had a good run in 2009. I think not that long ago. It's, two, it's January 2017. Yeah. Yeah, remarkably. Under Mourinho, they did, did a little all but, competition. But let's brush right. that under the carpet. <laughs> and say, what, a, what, a, what, what another fine, impressive this, uh, performance this was from Solskjaer shuffling his pack. Yeah, I thought it was really impressive. I think both teams had spells of dominance. Arsenal would probably feel that they had some goal-scoring opportunities they didn't take advantage of. But United did two things. One, they capitalised on their spells of dominance. And two, they offered a real serious counter-attacking threat during Arsenal's spells of dominance. And yeah, he did change the side slightly. I think um, it was basically the same shape as they played against Tottenham with Jesse Lingard, the top of a diamond, really. But uh, Sanchez and Lukaku came in and did really well. And uh, Lukaku in particular with his two assists. I mean, he doesn't play right wing often or right side of forward very often, but whenever he does, he looks really effective there. Right. Do you think that's where he should continue? Certainly in this system. Um, I, I've never been particularly convinced by his link play, but when he gets the ball in situations where he can drive towards goal, uh, obviously he's a goal threat. And I thought his presence of mind for these two assists. I mean, the pass to Sanchez for the first goal was really clever. Mm. Not the kind of thing you really associate with Lukaku, but he has that in his locker. And, and a great finish from Sanchez against his former club. I think United have got the the strongest number two in the league as well. That also helps. Not well, maybe not strongest, but the most reliable. Uh, he comes in. I, I think he's made the odd mistake when he's came in Romero, but uh, more often than not, he's just it's seamless when he comes in. Mm, very nice. So the notion anyway with Lukaku was to put him on Arsenal's uh, well, Kolasinac, yeah, uh, to really exploit, and that worked brilliantly. Um, some good spells from Arsenal. Did you feel? Because I, th- I thought it was a very dominant performance from United. Um, I thought towards the end of the first half they could have got back into the game. The problem was Kolasinac is, is really not very good defensively um, and United were prepared to let him go forward to counter him behind which worked very well. Arsenal of course as well had, had both centre-backs going off injured. They've had real problems in that department over the last couple of months. Um, the Koscielny injury is not 
that bad. I mean, it looked awful, but I right. think he's he's not going to miss too many games. Whereas uh, Socrates is out for about a month. I oh, really? Um, I- so that's Mustafi coming in, which is. Again, a question mark, I would say. Okay, and Bellerin, obviously, I think we're looking at, what, nine months they're talking and, about there? And Rob holding out for the season as well. Right, yeah. okay. So, uh, problems mounting then for Arsenal. DW10 says, why are Arsenal great one week and useless the next? Views on Emery's season so far? Well, I thought after the performance last week against Chelsea, I thought he'd stick with the same system. I mean, he's very much someone mm. who chops and changes. But he doesn't even seem to be aiming towards a consistent, settled side. And What's that, the, sort of like the diamond sort of in midfield? Yeah, yeah. Which, which I wouldn't have had that down necessarily as the best approach for the, for the team. But having played so well, I thought, you know, just stick with it for the next week. And he moved away from it, which I thought was odd. It was mm. the best approach because it was, it was right to sort of mark Jorginho at the, at the game as well. Yeah. But like I said, it's, yeah. it's, it's worked. He's played it twice. It's worked twice. Yeah. What were your thoughts on this game, Daniel? I like Manchester United under Solskjaer. The kind of broader point every time Manchester United win a game now is, is he going to get the job on a permanent basis? And I I kind of worked backwards and thought, if you wrote a list of five things that you'd want for Manchester United's long-term manager, how many of those is Solskjaer not already achieving? Mm. Which is, you know, sounds astonishing to say eight games in, but last time I was on, Michael made the point that they've beaten teams you'd expect them to beat but you wouldn't that doesn't mean you'd necessarily to beat expect them to be all seven of those teams right they're swatting away teams worse than them they're competing and beating teams better than them so I don't know what more Solskjaer can do the players are clearly happy mm. and they're, they're creating a headache for Ed Woodward because if he does want to make that change and let's say it's Mauricio Pochettino he pushes for it creates a huge amount of pressure on Pochettino to hit the ground at the same sprinting speed that Solskjaer has had I suspect he's he's playing his way into the job long term I, I think one of the biggest things that, uh, that Solskjaer has done he's unlocked the the conundrum about Paul Pogba because he, from early on he talked about what the way Man United play and quick transitions and uh, and that's what they've got back Michael said about them allowing Arsenal to come on them so there's space to break on them and that that's where you get Pogba the best out of Pogba when he's driving forward with the ball, he's taking players out of the game, he's committing defenders. He should have committed Mustafi because if he, if he plays the ball wide to Marshall, at least it's a better angle for uh, for Czech to, to come out at. But that's where Pogba's real strength is, in my book, anyway. And I thought it was interesting as well that it was mentioned after the game that Solskjaer had showed United's players videos of previous United counter-attacking goals at Arsenal, one scored by Ronaldo and Rooney. Yeah, but we're going two thousand and nine. Yes, yeah, so we're actually going back eight or nine years. I'm not sure it's particularly tactically relevant in terms of it's a completely different Manchester United side. It's a completely different Arsenal side. But Solskjaer has very much bought into this idea that there is a Manchester United identity, which personally I think is questionable. But the more you say it, the fans buy into it, the players seem to buy into it, and it worked very well here. And, and even the, the the last half hour against Spurs, when the backs against the wall, all Man United teams did that. They were capable of doing that. So it's not like I think I was I was a little bit harsh to judge. Oh well, they got battered from Spurs. They didn't for an hour. They they played really well. Um, United will get the chance to make it nine out of nine this midweek when they're at home to a Burnley side fresh from a five nil drubbing from the other Manchester side, Manchester City. Uh, one ugly note from Friday's uh, occasion was the coin was it thrown at Ashley Young. Mm. And uh, sad to see his response as well. That tweet, heads we win, tails you lose. As somebody pointed out, six words, four grammatical errors. <laughs> Spelt lose wrong. There are two random spaces in there and he's put an apostrophe in heads. I mean, but obviously that's not the bigger issue here. <laughs> Don't want to see people's rankings. I think it is. Well. Uh, anyway, now upsets. Upsets. There were many. Mm-hmm. Biggest of all was at King's Meadow as AFC Wimbledon downed West Ham 4-2. AFC Wimbledon, who are, what, five points adrift at the bottom of League One, Mm. beating mighty West Ham. How? Well, they were the better side throughout, to be fair. Um, West Ham... I'm always reluctant to say that bigger teams lack heart and lack desire, because I I think sometimes it's an excuse for not really exploring how it happened. But it was clearly a massive game for Wimbledon in terms of it was a relief to not be playing in the league where right. they're doing so badly. And this was a kind of one-off chance. It didn't have anything to lose. And they played positively. They didn't sit back and counter-attack and rely on set pieces, which, for example, is what Millwall did, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Um, they did play good football and they deserved the win. Wally Downs with his explanation. Football is random. There is a loads of analysis. 
Uh, I do it too, but on any given day, any team can beat any other team. We've done it tonight. They, West Ham, are a passing team, but with Andy Carroll in the side, they have to go direct. And they may have got caught between the two. We knew it was important to stop Mark Noble getting the ball. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think I think the football is random. Probably won't go down that well, given that they're five points adrift at the bottom of the, the league table. But yeah, it was it was great to see a side, a lower ranked side, get the lead and then not sit back on it, not do what I was at Shrewsbury on Saturday, and they did exactly that. They got a lead and then they just tried to close it out, and that allows managers to bring on attacking players. It allows attacking plans to look a lot easier when against worse defenders. Well, Pellegrini tried that here, didn't he? Making the three substitutions at half-time. He did, but it was scuppered because Wimbledon just said, well, we're going to carry on playing as we are. We're, we're playing well, we're, we're attacking you, so we're just going to carry on doing that. Right. And I think that unnerved West Ham. I think they assumed, as normally happens in these ties, that if you go 1-0 down, generally, for the last half an hour, you'll just it'll just be attack versus defence. And it wasn't that. Wimbledon were constantly trying to attack and attack and attack, and fair play to them. Yeah, they delight when they scored the third and particularly the fourth. Uh, fantastic to see. And of course, Woolly Downs, part of the old Wimbledon set Well, this is the thing I don't really understand about uh, Wimbledon because they, I mean, they're clearly struggling in League One. They got rid of Neil Ardley, who was another player who used to play for the old Wimbledon. They went for Woolly Downs. Woolly Downs hadn't managed in 15 years. He'd been coaching, not managing, but coaching in India. Um, and so this was kind of out of the blue. And the only reason that they've made this appointment, really, is that he's a link to the old club. And this is what Wimbledon are about. They're kind of confirming the fact that they're the old club and then there's an article in the times today by eric samuelson who's their chief executive who says talking about the crazy gang 30 years uh, on from the team that won the 1988 fa cup final and their boisterous reputation is lazy journalism do your research and don't talk to us like that it's an easy angle that catches the attention of the public but for us it's so frustrating and i find this a complete contradiction where they seem to be distancing themselves from everything that everyone knows about the Wimbledon while also maintaining that it's the same club and it was a really odd appointment i mean it was quite controversial as well because wally downs had consistently engaged in some tweeting activities over the past few years that uh uh, I think Kick It Out said they had serious concerns about he deleted his Twitter account as soon as he was appointed. Mm. It's just a slightly odd world, I find. Yeah, well, indeed. But what about from Manuel Pellegrini's perspective, David? Does he just write this off and think, well, I can concentrate on the league now? Or are there serious issues there that he, he now has to be concerned about? I don't think he has to be concerned about anything, but I, I think it's just it's just a lot of these clubs now, like so West Ham, and it's it's not their priority at all. So right. it's not it doesn't dent them at all. But Simple as that. Arnautovic is staying there. Huh? Yeah, he's signing a new contract. Yeah. yeah, it's got an extra day and I think a couple of extra zeros, perhaps. <laughs> uh, right. There's a very hastily put together statement on the club website on Saturday night that had no details of anything and clearly just been put up by. You know, it was it. It felt a little bit like they were trying to put a good spin on a pretty bad day. Yeah. In the statement, he, he comes out and says, uh, "Believe what I say. Believe what the club says. Don't believe what anybody else says." But I, th- I think it's. I think it's just fact, isn't it? Yeah, and also yeah. the agent's your brother. Well, there are one or two about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> anyway, uh, Daniel. Yes. You went in search of an upset this weekend, and you got that, but you got more, much more, as we'll discover after this. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yep, Waterfall playing for one side. The Donker in the 11 for the other, and that adds up to Daniel... Donker chasing waterfall. Yep. And this, this Jazz FM studio will have had plenty of voices in it, but none quite like my singing voice. Wow. This, the big story from Shrewsbury to Wolves, also to, on what was a tasty afternoon in the West Midlands. Daniel. Yeah, I hadn't had no real concept that this was a very spicy local derby, That, but... That's purely because of my lazy geography, not knowing anything between the West Midlands and Wales. Um, but yeah, 30 miles apart. And I spoke to Adam Bate, who is a Wolves fan, works Sky Sports, football writer. And he, before the game, and he said, yeah, there's been quite a lot of violence at pre-season games between the two clubs. Wow. And there was an extraordinary police presence, like something I've not seen outside of, you know, serious and obvious local derbies. And it was fully merited because there were... After Shrewsbury scored, the whole of their block ran down, and they are, you know, this is not glamorous. There's no, I don't think there's any glamour to football hooliganism anyway. But this is just young little oiks out for a, <laughs> causing trouble, and they were throwing lighters and coins at the away end. The away end then stormed down when they scored, and were doing the same. And then after the game, there was just running battles basically. So people just sprinting across traffic to get involved in outbreaks of fighting on the way to the station. It was just 
I just completely unprepared of it, so it com- it just caught me off guard. See, coins I understand, but why why are lighters seem are deemed so such a sort of yeah, a, a weapon of choice? Well, because I bet you can fling one quite far. Yeah, but hard, they're not going to uh, uh, <laughs> the light's not going to hurt you, though, is it? No, I don't think we're talking about big. Are we talking about big lighters yeah. or yeah. proper? Oh, really? Yeah, okay. you wouldn't throw, throw an expensive one. Oh, you're talking like if it's a Zippo, then it's, it's yeah. a different story. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that yeah. Old Isn't it just like anything that's in your pocket? Right. Yeah. Okay. Match uh, what, what are you going to light like your cigarettes with, though, after? It's, yeah. It doesn't make sense. So, the no, rest, w- anyone asking for a match. Worryingly, there'll be the, the occasion for further such scenes in 10 days' time. Yeah. When they have a replay. Yeah, and it is the um, elements of the away sport. I want to be careful. Which to, the, the war? No. The, w- well, wars have a, a, have a reputation. Do they? Uh, yeah, it can be even Molyneux. There can be pockets of areas out the ground, side of the ground. Basically, as, as you walk the way, and there's a tunnel you walk under, mm. and it can be pretty unpleasant under there. Um, I mean, every club has a minority, and it was just a minority, but it really did overshadow what was an excellent FA Cup tie. Yeah, just thinking those coins and lighters were literally thrown to the walls at the, the, <laughs> Indeed. At the weekend. So tell us about the two-two draw in itself, and still a fine result for for Sam Ricketts. Yes, there was a lovely backstory to the game in that Ricketts had obviously played for Wolves for a couple of years, was an academy coach there as well. And he's been bobbing along since being appointed Shrewsbury manager. He took over an 18th in League One and would like to be higher than that, and they're still 18th. But yeah, they played really, really well. Took the lead, sat back, but then scored a second from a corner. And then kind of assumed that they got, the crowd assumed they got through, the team assumed they got through. So they just sat back and... Yeah, Wolves had Adama Traore and brought on Jimenez and they just mm. just sat back too far and, and yeah, it took until the 93rd minute for them to get their equaliser. Right. You'd think they'd probably get the job done at Molyneux in the replay, which is just a bit of a shame. A word for Adama Traore? He is... Michael wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about Moussa Dembele probably being one of the most unique footballers in the Premier League. Now Dembele is gone, I'd say Adama Traore might now take that. He's in, an astonishing in, player in to watch. Well, he... He's very fast. He's very good at dribbling, but that—that's about it. You know, his final ball—it's like he gets like a rabbit in the headlights. He just doesn't know what to do after beating four men. Mm. He's extraordinary to watch. I described him as like a like a computer game character where a kid has got all these points to use up, and he just uses them all on dribbling and all on Brilliant. pace, and then yeah. he's got absolutely nothing else. So everything else is just lacking. Um, if he get if he clicks, he'll be a fifty million pound footballer, but he just doesn't click. I'll sum him up in one word: biceps. I've not seen a more or better developed bicep on a footballer really? than, than him. And the, the, the change in him was astonishing. So I, I, I looked at photographs from about, I think maybe, maybe 12 months, yeah, 18 months at earlier. Yeah, here, actually. Yeah. He's 23, by the way. Uh, and they are, they're impressive. Aren't they? Yeah. He, he went up two headers on Saturday and through, just through colliding with a central defender, the defender goes flying, so he gives away a free kick and he just looks at the refs and say. I mean, I just touched him. It's like, yeah, but if you touch him with those biceps, he is going to go flying. Wow. Uh, what, what did you guys make of uh, Oliver Norburn reading a note before he mm. walked in the corner? I've never seen that before. It was, I, I didn't know until, obviously, until after the game. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an odd one in that he reads a note and then delivers the ball to the edge of the mm. six-yard box, which is the most stereotypical kind of standard corner delivery. I th- it was almost like that Paul Ince thing that said shoot on it. It's almost as if he had a note that said kick the ball near the goal. And like, oh yeah, I'll do that this time. Bang straight. Well, that's in. what he said was on it. But what Sam Ricketts said was on the uh, oh really the note. He said yeah, just put it in and score a goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but and but, it might we assumed he was joking. Sort of motivational speaker. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, but even it's just a uh, there might there might be nothing on the note. It might be a, a sort of a tactic to yeah, yeah. you're talking right. nervous. Well, I remember right. in uh, Jose Mourinho's early days at Chelsea. When a sub was coming on, he he often used to give them a note to pass to another player that would involve changing positional play or maybe marking someone different at a corner. And he got into the habit of doing this. And then a couple of times towards the end of the season, he'd just bring on a, a note and said, oh, give it to Michael Essien or whatever. And the note just said on it, win. Right. So maybe it was that kind of hey, thing. Hey, sometimes the little things. Yeah. Whatever happened to him, Jose Mourinho? <laughs> Don't know. Mm. Shocks elsewhere anyway in this uh, most surprising weekend. South East London, for example where Everton lost 3-2 at the New Den. There was controversy here. Millwall's second goal, it was the second, wasn't it? Clearly yeah. a handball. Yes. And it's the kind of handball we chatted about, I think, on last week's show, where I'm not sure it was deliberate, but under new rules to come in, yeah. that will officially be, you should disallow that. Yeah, so the ball bounced basically off his arm into yeah, the goal. Because I don't so. think that is deliberate handball. Under no, but the current you score a goal off coming off somebody's arm, you, you exactly. kind of feel unhappy about that being given, which it was, because... 
the referees didn't see it and there was no VAR because VAR was only being used in games taking place at Premier League stadiums. Yeah, but I don't see the argument with this. You know that you're either going to have it before the game or after. Yeah, okay, it should be widespread, everyone should have it, but well, yeah, I don't see the argument... I don't see the arguing about it after a game. Yeah, what? the the, the fast. If you were, if you were Everton, would you not think this is ridiculous? Other teams had. Oh yeah, but they knew. Yeah, but they knew about it. They but knew it wasn't they were about what they did. It's what the referees did or didn't do. So it's not like they failed to take account for the referees' mistake. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing Everton. Yeah, but the, the, the complaint the complaints afterwards is saying right. that they should have it all games. Well, if they, I don't know, is it a, a trial? Is that what it is? Yeah, it's just a trial, yeah well, it's just yeah. a trial. Yeah. So the, that's why they haven't got it all. The, the farce came in because Millwall, someone at Millwall, made a stupid mistake, which yeah. was that they put the yeah. the replay on the big screen, yeah. and he had that really comical thing with Neil Harris going, "Take it off the big screen, take <laughs> it off," because he knew. Yeah. And I agree with David. I think if you know before the game, yes, it was a farce that you could see it on the screen, but Everton knew as soon as the goal was given that the goal had been given. Like right. they might be annoyed at the refereeing decision, but that's not an argument against mm. VAR. That's an argument against a poor refereeing decision. Right. But do you not think it's bizarre? Uh, especially for something like VAR, where one of the points against it was always, oh, it has to, football has to be the same at mm. every level. Well, at least within the single round of, of a particular cup competition, make sure that the you know the goalposts. Yeah, are the same. I don't disagree with that. But Everton knew that before the game, so, so you can't be asking for it. Yeah. yeah, you can't be demanding it on the touchline mid-game no, just because okay, it's on the screen. Enough, I think their frustration was uh, understandable, particularly given the situation that Marco Silva now finds himself in. Mm. The increasingly haggard Marco Silva. That's five away defeats in six. Hmm. Yeah, Farhad Mashiri came out on was 9th of January. He did a presentation and said everyone expected it to be bland platitude. And he said, yeah, the league position is not good enough. It needs to improve before mm. the summer. And since then, they've lost away at Southampton and lost to Millwall. And yeah, I think he probably might be in a little bit of trouble, which because he's sold himself as this short term manager, it's very hard to then go to an owner and say, oh, hang on, I want this to be long term because you've sold yourself as a complete opposite of that. So right. yeah, I'm a bit worried for him. The controversy over the, the second. Millwall goal notwithstanding the two big other issues one is great result for the Lions against Premier League opposition secondly the trouble that we had here as well both outside the ground where there were there was a very nasty injury in scuffles mm. between both sets of supporters and then in the abuse the, the chanting the racist chants inside well I mean I put something on Twitter yesterday saying that it wouldn't be too harsh if they were if Millwall were to be kicked out of the cup now that's not going to happen and also going to happen but we're getting to a point now where Something like that has to happen. It's the only thing that will stop this happening. And it's not just a few people. It's not just a handful of people. I wasn't going to do a head count, but... (laughs) Act like Hanif writing in. It's a valid suggestion by David Priest to send a strong message by kicking them out. We always ask for stringent punishments from you away from FIFA. It might be worth trying it ourselves. We have this high and mighty attitude towards the likes of Italy and Spain when problems arise there. And we're always up in arms because it's it's not a strong enough punishment for even though if they get a £10,000 fine or something like that. Well, be a leader in this, uh, in this area. Show people how we should treat racists because that's what they are. I know there's a lot of Millwall fans saying, well, well you shouldn't punish the honest fans. Well, actually... The problem's not with me suggesting that they should be going to kick out the cup. It should be with the the racists. Now, the racists do spoil it for everyone. So I say, oh, it's only a few of them that, you know, they shouldn't spoil it for everyone else. Well, actually, that's what they're doing and they continue to do it. And what... Whatever work they've done in the background over the years, which I'm sure there's a lot of people at the club worked hard to try and get rid of this tag that they've got, it keeps happening. And, and whether it's you know people choosing these big occasions when they're gonna they get lots of publicity to to do this and know that that's what's going to get them notoriety. The normal Millwall fans will still go by the motto "Nobody likes us, we don't care." Well, a lot of the fans cared enough to, to have a go back at me yesterday and and say that I was wrong. But it's not a Millwall thing. It's not an anti-Millwall thing. It's an anti-racism thing. And until there's a zero tolerance to this. You know, in the case of the Chelsea, I was exactly the same. Uh, the Chelsea incident I was exactly the same, and that was as forthright the same. And when it's individuals, when it's three or four individuals that you can pick them out, fine, deal with those individuals. When it's a big group, then it's the club's problem, and it's the rest of the fans' problems. I'm sorry. Elsewhere in the FA Cup, Derby made it to the last 16, beating Accrington Stanley 1 0 in front of a record crowd at the Wham Stadium. Doncaster Rovers are in the FA Cup fifth round for the first time in 63 years. Uh, they beat Oldham Athletic. Uh, Newport will take Borough back to Rodney Parade. 
after a 1-1 in the Tony Peters Transporter Bridge derby. <laughs> Craig Anderson saying, did you know that a transporter bridge was part of the plot in the 2002 Alveda St. Pets series? Do you remember this, Daniel? Yes, I've had, as I told you before the show, I've now had that Alfida Sen pet theme tune in my head all right. morning, and it is a belter, so listen to it. Yeah, that's living that's all right. That's living all right. Just uh, on the subject of Newport, to yes. continue something we we spoke about after the previous FA Cup round, the two teams that made the fewest changes this weekend were Shrewsbury and Newport, and they both got good results. That's interesting. Although... Against that, Watford, I think, made 11 changes for the second game. Yeah, but that doesn't support my argument, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that's, that's the probably the reason why we are, you know, somebody's saying about is this the, the least amount of Premier League's we've, uh, teams we've had in the mm. next round of the Cup? That's probably why. You know what I mean? It, it's given the lesser teams a chance. Well, and I think it's a good thing. It certainly is. Now, uh, did you notice John Obi Mikel? Uh, John Mikel Obi? A combination of those three names made an appearance for Barra. I didn't know he'd gone to the Riverside. Yeah, slightly strange move that, but uh, yeah, nice to have him back in English football, I guess. Yeah. He was in uh, China with a Chinese club, in yeah. this case called uh, Tianjin. I prefer when they're unnamed Chinese yeah. clubs. Helps everyone. <laughs> Watford, as I mentioned, uh, 11 changes again from Javi Gracia. They beat Newcastle 2-0, which probably suits everybody. Chelsea beat Sheffield Wednesday. What a goal from uh, Callum Hudson Odoi! Mm. Yeah, and um, again, broader picture. Who handed in a transfer request on Saturday? The word from well, the word in the media is that he he was always going to have to do this because Chelsea were not going to accept selling him without the club effectively forcing the move and basically trying to make him look you know, spoilt and trying to engineer and force a move and that's the only way they were going to sell him uh, and he's done exactly that and good on him I think I actually think Westwood should have saved it to be honest mm. he, sort of, he, he sort of guessed a little bit and leaned to the side and yeah. if he just held his ground he'd, 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 he'd have saved it yeah exactly yeah. So. Right. What, Higuain make his debut for Chelsea how'd he do? did okay I mean yeah. quite forgettable performance yeah. really also Palace beat Spurs 2-0 which means we'll talk about Roy's joy and the Spurs slump after this. Listeners, our friend Daniel's story is far too modest to say it, but his new book, 250 Days, Cantona's Kung Fu and the Making of Man United is every bit as magnificent as you'd expect. It gives the full account of that infamous kick at Selhurst Park 24 years ago, Eric's subsequent nine-month ban, the Seagulls following the Trawler press conference, and also how United's number seven worked behind the scenes at Old Trafford to change the course of footballing history. 250 Days, Cantona's Kung Fu and the Making of Man United by Daniel Storey is out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Keep listening to the end of the show for an exclusive extract. Sunday at Sellers Park, Spurs crushing out their second cup competition in just four days. But as Ed Quoother Raven points out, is there a better feel good story from this round of the FA Cup than Crystal Palace? Wickham scoring on his first start in two years. Dan playing for the second time after over a year out injured. Spironi proving he's still just about got it. The, the Connor Wickham is the story there, um, and it, his face when he scored the goal, he kind of instinctively reacted of "Yes, I've scored a goal," and it was a really scrappy goal. And then he just basically broke down and fell to his knees because, yeah, so it was his first goal for 799 days, first start for 792 days. He's had horrific injury problems. I saw a tweet yesterday; it was really interesting, pointing out that him and Harry Kane. When Wickham had got injured, he moved for eight million pounds from Sunderland to Palace, and Kane was basically still being kind of seen as a, a young striker at Spurs that hadn't quite pushed through. And it shows what injuries can do because I think there's a reputation with footballers sometimes that injured players just can sit around and get paid for nothing, mm-hmm. as if they enjoy being injured. And it couldn't, well, David will know, couldn't be further from the truth. It's soul destroying. It will break them. And Fair play to him for coming back because, you know, stronger men than him would probably have, have given up by now. Well, uh, injured players are something Spurs know all about. Mm-hmm. Qu- quick shout out to Roy Hodgson's touch, oh. killing that ball on the sideline. Still got it, hasn't he? Yeah. Well, I wasn't aware that he'd had it. <laughs> Clearly, I was, I was wrong. Uh, Spurs, anyway. I mean, that's great for Palace and now the Spurs bit because, as I mentioned, they crash out of another competition. Interesting comments from. This was Thursday night, our last thing. You'll all have seen they were, they went out against Chelsea 1-0 up from the first leg of the Carabao Cup semi-final. Uh, it went to penalties. Johnny Blaine's Spurs fan tweeting, if you've not been sat there all day thinking Spurs will lose 2-1 and go out on pens when previously 
they'd have gone uh, uh, gone through on away goals. You're not a proper Spurs fan because because they changed the rules this season. Mm. But it's not a problem, says Pochettino. Uh, again, we're going to have the debate on whether a trophy will take the club to the next level, says the Spurs manager. I don't agree with it. It only builds your ego. The most important thing for Spurs right now is to always be in the top four. What, what do you make of that? you just got to accept it. You know, the magic of the FA Cup isn't something, or the uh, National Cup, uh, our National Cup, isn't the same, isn't held the same everywhere else. You know, other countries, Denmark have played in, we, they used to play cup games on a Thursday night when nobody, in, nobody's bothered about it. But Pochettino's been in this country for long enough, surely, to realise yeah, but, the I mean, importance but, but, of... He, he, yeah, but he shouldn't, he's not going to change his philosophy of, of, or his priorities. I don't think so. I must admit, I was surprised to, by him publicly saying, particularly that he says it only builds your ego, almost yeah. as if it was a kind of a short shortfall in somebody's character to care about the FA Cup. That does surprise me, that phrase. I mean, uh, I'm always reluctant of reading too much into people speaking in their second language. Yeah, that's but fair. build your ego, I think, is an odd expression because I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing for competitive sportsmen. I mean, you losing know. at Palace certainly... Disastrous. Well, well, exactly, and and the more people will go on about Spursy and being bottle, bottlers and all this rubbish, then the more you think, well, there is a kind of almost inferiority complex. And I do think there's some examples around Europe over the last ten years of when a club have won their first trophy, something changes in them, and this is something that footballers do speak about. I mean, to go back to Jose Mourinho's first spell at Chelsea. He had a big thing about winning the League Cup. And after he won it, he always said it puts our players in the right frame of mind to go on and win a trophy. So I think often we consider this trophy issue too much on, you know, whether it will change Pochettino's legacy. I think it can actually change Spurs' mentality, um, which is what he's partly there to do. The only, the answer to, his answer to that is that if Tottenham had bought three players last summer, right. if they had no injuries at the moment, if Kane was fit, if Ali was fit, if, sure. if Son was available, and this had happened like this and he'd have said the same quote again I think there would have been a bit of a more of a backlash but the reality is is the, the ego comment I agree is slightly odd but the reality is that his point was finishing the top four is has to be our priority right. and I don't believe we can do that by competing there's a weird thing with big six clubs in, in, including Spurs in that if you go out in the third round of each competition a la Liverpool this season no one really kicks up a fuss but Spurs get all the way to the semi-final, including beating Arsenal, and then lose, then it's considered as bottling. And I think, how is it more bottling to get to a semi-final and lose than it is just to throw in the towel against Wolves with a reserve team and lose, when Liverpool have got a far stronger squad than Tottenham have? Mm. So I just I feel for Pochettino on that on the issue, because I think that we didn't... He left out Christian Eriksen yeah. and he left out Danny Rose. But other than that, there weren't a huge number of was other he, things he could have done. Was he trying to put a brave face as well on, a, on an afternoon which saw some pretty bizarre performances from the likes of Carl uh, Walker-Peters and mm. uh, and also Kieran uh, Trippier? Yeah, Trippier is... Yeah, he left himself in Russia last summer. He's been wretched this season, quite frankly, and his penalty was awful. And it only becomes an issue if Tottenham's players have not bought into mm. into it. If they really want to win the FA Cup and this weekend team bothered them and bothered key players, then yeah, Pochettino might have an issue in his hands. But I suspect they're happy with... I suspect they're on the same page. In your opinion, is it, do you think it'd be easier for them to win the League Cup than the FA Cup? Not anymore, but... No, uh, no, no, but <laughs> at the start of the season. Yeah, probably. I, I'd say yeah. so as well. So I, I think... Uh, I totally agree with Michael's point about the change of mentality because it, it does... It breaks the seal. For them and, and for them to go on to win other things, they've got players there have won won domestic trophies at, at clubs before, so it's not a, a, an individual thing. But also about the uh, what was my other point? <laughs> League Cup semi. So they reached. Uh, oh man, no. There was another point. You didn't. You didn't say two. Points. Oh no, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And the the point about um, sort of inflating egos, right? It's to him. It's his job is not on the line. So if his job was on the line, then. I can agree with him thinking, well, it's not going to save my job. Right. Champions League is going to save my job. FA Cup's not going to save my job. But he's in the position where he doesn't have to worry about that. And so I, I, at, one, at one part, I understand that, well, OK, he's got his priorities, but he's, he's, he, they've got a great chance of winning it, though. And, and these extra games, like I said, if he gets the semi-finals or the last stages of other Cups, it's not going to make any difference. Right. To, the, to their long-term plan because it's one or two extra games. To be fair, he did. I mean, they did clearly try and win the uh, Carabao Cup second yeah. second leg. It just didn't work out. And with the injuries, that they, I mean, if you were to take the equivalent three best or three of the most attacking players out of 
Liverpool. Liverpool, for example. Effectively, they, they played on Saturday without Salah, Firmino and, and Mane. That, that, and Liverpool would be a far worse team without it. And Liverpool have massive backup in other areas that they can play different systems and play different players in different positions. Tottenham don't have that. Their, their first choice central midfield at the moment is probably Harry Winks and Eric Dyer, which is, is probably, I think, is worse than nine other teams in the Premier League at a punt, I'd say. Right. Certainly, better, certainly worse than Wolves central L- midfield. At least they'll have Son, Youngman's son back. Uh, yes. Because uh, Qatar beat South Korea, mm. and uh, so we, we, will it be back available for this this midweek when they take on Watford? Quite possibly. Yeah, they uh, they tweeted their commiserations, yeah. I think, which <laughs> I think probably needed some inverted commas around that word. Right, uh, Spurs against Watford is on Wednesday. They uh, one, one thing it does yep. do mm. is, and Pochettino will have to accept this, is that it does increase the scrutiny on Tottenham's next. Premier League and Champions League games because right. if they lose to Watford this midweek and they go out to Dortmund then the argument of well this wasn't the priority suddenly starts to look foolish in hindsight I think mm. because right. they were in four competitions a week ago and that would leave them in none mm. Alright, well we'll talk about the uh, midweek action coming up the race at the top for force at the bottom, all that stuff uh, very shortly but not until after we've heard about last week's turmoil in Monaco so that result was their eighth nil-nil in a row, and we've even had reports of fans falling asleep in their seats. Stuart is at the game, joins us now on the line. Stuart? Stuart? Sounds like Stuart needed paddy power, because with our new Same Game Multi, you can combine multiple bets from the same game, so everything is exciting. Plus, you'll get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold Same Game Multi lets you down. Paddy power. Enough of the nonsense. Applies to pre-match fourfold plus Same Game Multi bets. First qualifying bet only. Max free bet £10 per customer per day. Exclude shop bets. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Hello, Julien Laurent. My word, what drama last Thursday uh, down in the Principality. Thierry Henry getting the old heave-ho after 20 games and a little bit more than 100 days in charge. What happened? A fascinating day. In the morning, um, I spoke to a few people at the club and they were saying the job is safe. Um, he will you know, he will finish the season. We, we've signed new players. We're going to sign a few more players as well this month. And, and we're just hoping that he turns things around and that the, you know, the, the players react after the, the heavy defeat in the, in the French Cup the night before against Mess, the second division team. Uh, and then at half seven, he was gone. So things were really escalated really quickly for him on that Thursday afternoon. I think he decided to um, drop some of the senior players to the first team, which a lot of them didn't take well. Uh, they went to complain to the, the, the top of the club. And I think that was the final straw. They already obviously had doubts before about him because of his attitude as well, which was never the best, to put it that way. And I, and I think the, the last straw was really the fact that he wanted to get rid of some of his senior players and that the dressing room didn't accept it. So, the, so his players effectively forced him out. In what way was his attitude not the best? Yeah, I mean, there were things like... I mean, Thierry is Thierry. For whoever has come across him, he's a, he's a very special character. And I think the problem, and we talked a lot about it on the show, was that he never really got into uh, being a manager mode. He was always still a player or at times a pundit. And I think you can't, I, I just don't think that's good enough at that level. So, for example, at training, he would get really frustrated when they couldn't do something that he could easily do. He was hurt uh, during one game, for example, talking about one of his players saying, is that guy really worth 10 million euros? And everybody could hear. So things like that, are, you know, are not good for your squad. And then obviously there was the incident with uh, with uh, Loic Badeyashile, the goalkeeper before the Borussia Dortmund game in the Champions League the night before in a press conference where he humiliated basically publicly for not taking in his chair enough under the desk after the end of the press conference, which didn't go down well at all with the club. That didn't go down well with the dressing room as well where they thought he was he was being very pedantic and, and very arrogant. And that's how he was from the beginning, the first to the last day of his tenure at the club. And I think, for me, that was the biggest problem. I think, you know, tactically, he will obviously learn a lot from what happened and he will get better. But if he doesn't change his attitude, he will never be able to succeed anywhere as a manager because that was just, he was just not a, he was not a manager like he should have been. 
Wow. Okay. So, Jules, they've reappointed the far more cuddly Leonardo Jardim, who they've given they've had to give a new contract to, but it's okay because he was still living in Monaco and used to see the players on his way to the Bakers. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. But what's what's incredible for Jardim is that three months ago they sacked him, giving and they gave him eight million euros. He went on holidays, spent a lot of time with his family, and now they're reappointing him. You know, on the same wages as it was before, with a better squad because they signed Fabregas and Naldo and Jenson Martins and Baloture. So he he left with a million quid and he's back three months later in a much better situation, context if you want. Eight million richer after having gone on holidays for three months. It's, it's a pretty awesome turnaround for him, to be fair. It certainly is. Oh, how does how does Fabregas come out of this situation? I mean, supposedly he went there partly because of the Henri connection. Is he is he being left a bit high and dry by all this? Yeah, I mean, he went there completely for you know because Cherry was there, so he surely couldn't have been happy by the decision. And um, he played well in his first game against Marseille. Then he didn't play against Nice the second game because it was a game that was postponed before, so he was not eligible. And then didn't really do well against Strasbourg in the league when they were smashed 5-1 um, last week, the weekend before last. So he's, it's been already up and down for him. And now he's without one of his best friends and who's the manager who convinced him to go to a club in turmoil, really. So it's a funny, it's a funny one for Seth Fabregas. I was in Paris a couple of weeks ago and uh-huh. nobody's heard of Julian. He's a fraud. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. So he's from Basingstoke. Sky pundits turn managers, though, eh? Gary yeah. Neville and now Cherry Henry makes you think. Yeah, yeah. Carragher's going to sit where he is. <laughs> <laughs> Although um, Stephen Gerald's saying okay, though, no? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's third not a Sky. Race. different different channel, though, isn't it? It's BT Sport. Mm. Just, you know. Uh, right. Anyway. Uh, that wasn't the only excitement in France, of course, this weekend, as uh, Nace Base Lace, I think that is, says, did anyone see Marseille versus Lille? Firecrackers, red cards, horrible tackles, and crowds cheering on the away team. This is because Marseille fans, once again, are protesting in the most uh, extreme uh, of ways against their, their management and also their, their manager, Rudy Garcia. They didn't go into the stadium until the 10th minute in protest. Then the fireworks happened for once. Balotelli was nothing to do with this. Um, <laughs> game was suspended for half an hour. Balotelli uh, did score on his debut. There were two goals in stoppage time, plus nine yellows and one red. Olympic Marseille under Garcia haven't won since November. It feels like he's been two games from the sack for about mm. a, a year. It's yeah. great. Anyway, well, we'll talk more about kind of foreign football later on. But right now, on the subject of exotic locales, Nottingham. Daniel. Martin O'Neill won his first game in charge of Nottingham Forest and what's happening at the other Nottingham club? It's been a heck of a weekend for the UK city of football. Um, Yeah, so Forest O'Neill won his first game and Roy Keane actually is at training this morning and will join us as assistant today. Okay. Uh, But yeah, across the city, so Notts County, put it into context, were at the start of 2018, were top of League Two and looking good for promotion with Kevin Nolan as manager. They've since sacked Nolan, appointed Harry Kuehl for about six weeks, sacked Kuehl, appointed Neil Ardley, they're now bottom of League Two, eight points from safety. Ardley's only won one game, I think. He's hardly had any improvement at all. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, and their owner, Alan Hardy, who is a local man made good, and I'll be careful to speak to detailed about Mr Hardy because he's pretty litigious um but yeah he the things we do know are that um as per a, a guardian column this weekend there's a whatsapp conversation between a number of staff months ago in which they talked pretty openly about the, how they disliked the owner uh four, seven of them were suspended four of them were sacked two of those three that stayed have since left the club there is a toxic atmosphere at the club big squad high wages bottom of the football league and this weekend hardy is who is always on Twitter and always saying, got to sit together, guys. We're going to fight. We, we'll get through this together. Accidentally tweeted a picture of his penis uh, on Twitter and then apologised for that and said, I'm going to delete my Twitter account, which he does as a kind of monthly thing. Hasn't deleted his Twitter account, but has put the club up for sale, um, right. saying that he needs to focus on his other business interests. So they're very much all in it together until the owner wants he to gets sell. His willy out. Bit of a cock up, wasn't it? Choosing mm. your words carefully and all that. Uh, Matt Davis Adams will be no doubt taking a similar approach when he discusses all of this kind of thing. 
and uh, Billy Sharp's excellent goal celebration at Norwich and all the other EFL news in the Totally Football League show, which is out on Tuesday. We'll have a chat maybe about Italy, maybe about Germany later on. First, let me ask you this from the FPL doctor. Why do we have corner flags? Goal kicks, free kicks and penalties are all taken without relying on a flag. Michael, why do we have corner flags? Well, it's nothing to do with the taking of the kick. It's deciding whether it's a throw or a goal kick. Oh, I see. So it just del- it, it helps them delineate, yeah. to, to decide where the... be fascinated to know what this person thinks the corner flag was for. What? I didn't know what for, it was for. For leaning? To, <laughs> to see where the wind's blown. Yeah, that would help. Like Goal celebrations. Yeah. yeah. Microphone. All right. Okay. That's, I mean, it's a good answer. There it's you go. the right answer. <laughs> I just, I'm just surprised that isn't obvious. Mm. Oh, sorry, I don't mean to be rude, but... No, no. It's funny, you... Ta- you Slamming ch- the FPL doctor. I was chatting to someone recently, and I, I was explaining that referees run diagonally, and he'd been watching football for 20 years and was amazed by this concept. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of people don't know why we have the centre circle as well. Because you have to stand around the edge of it. Ten yards away, yeah. Um, tell me about referees running diagonally. Is one leg shorter than the other? Or <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you have the lines. The linesmen are kind of diagonally opposite to each other, right? And therefore, the referee runs diagonally in the other direction, so he covers more. The oh, yeah, okay, like a kind, kind of, of percentage yeah. sign or something. So, this, so decisions in the left back zone, for example, would yeah. generally be the responsibility of the linesman. The right, right back would generally be the responsibility of the referee. This new learning amazes me. Yeah, it's not that interesting, but it's a it's a it's thing. Pretty interesting. It's okay. People also don't know about the linesman. You know, the linesman flags differently according to where the offside took place, yes, as well. That's... How do you mean? So if if there's an offside down. on the near side, the the flag points down. Right. In the middle, it points horizontally, okay. and on the far side, it points because that, high. That enables referee to tell if he if that player is interfering with play or not. So you say, Daniel? Mm. Okay. Um, that's that's fantastic. Let's move move on to the midweek round. FPL doctor, if you've got any other questions, do send them in because I almost certainly will be as intrigued by the answer as you will. Uh, midweek round, what can we look forward to? David Priest, put your phone away. What are you looking forward to this midweek round? I was round? doing research. That's what I was doing. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, City and Liverpool. Liverpool, of course, fresh from the beach. While City have been doing all their cup things, boosting their ego with victories in various trophy-chasing uh, competitions, uh, Liverpool will return from the Middle East to, to host Leicester. Liverpool, they've only squeaked past Brighton and Palace in their last two, so Leicester, as I recall, a very patchy team, but they did beat City, didn't they? Yeah, they beat City. Uh, yeah, I'm going to Anfield on Wednesday. Okay. I think it's a big old test for Liverpool because they have just squeaked past opponents. And we didn't really talk about Manchester City, but what Pep Guardiola is doing is he's picking very strong teams for... Uh, cup competitions because he wants to get basically put this sort of feeling of invincibility around the club and they've won their last six games by an aggregate of 28 nil. 28 nil, and that will put pressure on Liverpool um, so yeah Leicester are an unfathomable club under Claude Puel at the moment so it wouldn't put it past that we wouldn't put it past them to produce their best at Anfield. Okay, and Liverpool particularly have a, have an issue because James Milner out suspended. I'm not sure how many players are, has anyone returned at the back. Uh, Virgil Van Dijk did he miss training? I think Fabinho. I think, I think Van Dijk will be okay. Okay, all right. So potentially the and they'll the, have a back four. Yeah, and City play Tuesday night, which puts a little bit more pressure on Liverpool right. should they win. Well, yeah, but of course if if they lose, <laughs> the opposite effect. And where are they? Oh, they're at Newcastle. <laughs> so okay, but actually they have a really good record. Surprisingly, against Newcastle, uh, they've scored thirty, conceded four in their last eleven in League and Cup against the Magpies. Aguero, in particular, got hat trick last season. All basically all three goals in a three 0 win. The year before, he got five in that six one. Crikey, mm. five goals! My, uh, my two of my best friends are Newcastle fans, and left of that. That one where Aguero scored five, they left the ground after twenty-one minutes. Wow! What was I think score? it was. I think it was. It was either three or four nil. Wow! Uh, yeah, they just decided to go back to Manchester City Centre because it would be more entertaining than the game. Mm. Uh, Harry Maguire should be back for Leicester for that game away at Liverpool. Uh, the race for the top four, of course, Spurs are four points clear of Chelsea. They're hosting Watford who beat them actually earlier on in the season at Vicarage Road 2-1. That was their first victory against Tottenham in 30 years, for what that's worth. Since then, they've met at Wembley in the League Cup. Spurs went through on penalties. Do you, kind of, given Spurs' current wobble, 
do you quite fancy the Hornets here? Yeah, I think Spurs' injury problems just mean that they don't have enough attacking threat. I mean, we saw that in the... Even with Son back? Game. Maybe Son back. I, I'm not sure the status there. He might be jet-lagged. He, he might be out of sync. You know, it's quite a big time difference to come back from. Uh, I think Watford are a really good team, actually, and they'll be fresh having rested 11 players at the weekend. I think right. he'd probably play Youngmin Son, even if he was asleep, and he'd be better than Fernando Llorente was Ooh, against Crystal harsh. Palace on Sunday. Damn. Although Lorenzi did score against and quite a fine header, no, against Chelsea last Thursday. Yeah, he, oh. his link-up play yesterday was absolute. Him and Nkudu just, I mean, they look like fringe players in a team that um, is miles and miles ahead of them. It's just passed them by. Yeah, Nkudu's finish from that quite clever <laughs> trip here from yeah. kick was really, I mean, that's the kind of thing I'd do at five a side. Yeah, I was about to say, it's <laughs> a, that's a, my finish, yeah. Uh, okay, so four points behind Spurs are Chelsea, who are at Bournemouth. Potentially Higuain making his lead debut. Same goes for Bournemouth's Chris Mepham. There you go. Any strong thoughts on that match? Or shall I ask you about the two teams behind them? Three points behind Chelsea, oh. who are, of course, uh, Bournemouth have only won two of the last ten. Sorry, well, Daniel. It's a big game for Chelsea because Arsenal have got Cardiff at home and Manchester United have got Burnley at home. Yeah. And for all the progress in getting through in the cup competitions, their last Premier League performance was uh, an absolute shambles and raised serious questions of Mauricio Sarri and Mauricio Sarri in turn raised even more serious questions of his players' attitude. Yeah. So it's a big game for Chelsea. The, uh, after that defeat to Arsenal, it did seem the players responded well to what could have been divisive remarks by, by their manager. But yeah, pressure certainly on because Arsenal expected to beat Cardiff Tuesday... Uh, it finished 3-2 actually when they met in Cardiff earlier in the season and you could wonder if Cardiff could put two goals past Arsenal when they were at full strength now that mm. Arsenal's bat line is in pieces. Yeah, I think it will be a very much a set-piece dominated approach from Cardiff. They are good at getting long throws in. They're quite good at working set-pieces. I think Sean Morrison is possibly the best player in the league at winning the first ball. They don't necessarily have the players who are good at latching onto the second balls but they could cause problems. Okay, and Man United hosting Burnley, which given both sides' record certainly seems like they might be expected to get three points. Wolves are up against West Ham on Tuesday. At the bottom, between 14th place and the relegation zone, you've got three points and five teams. Palace, Saints and Burnley are all level. Newcastle are point behind them, just on the right side of the dotted line. And then two points behind Newcastle in the relegation zone are Cardiff. Mm -hmm. Games this midweek... Saints taking on Palace. Fulham, who are seven points from safety, host Brighton. That feels like sort of last chance saloon. Another one. Well, if they lose at home to Brighton, then I think given the fixtures they've got left, it feels a little bit like an inevitability that they sort of join that Huddersfield group of teams that we pretty much assume are down. Huddersfield, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The least efficient side in Europe. Who are in front Fulham. of goal? Huddersfield, the least efficient side in front of goal in Europe. What are the numbers, David? Uh, they score one goal every seventeen point three shots. Really? Yeah, it's not good. They have it? got a new manager. It should be said. It's yeah. Jan Sieverts' first game in charge. Thirty-six-year-old. Mm. He's brought in Barnsley coach Andreas Winkler. Yeah. to his back room. But they, that's to be fair. That's not where they need reinforcements, is it? No, Seaver is going to be a really interesting one because inevitably he's being resold as a as another David Wagner, as in Bundesliga. But they had experience. a David Wagner already. Yeah, and it's Why going to be impossible to replicate what Wagner did. The reason Wagner left is because he he basically was knackered out by the whole yeah. process and wanted to break. But this assumption that Seaver can come in and do exactly the same, it isn't that easy. Mm. And this, you know, it's going to be really interesting how it gets on because he's basically been appointed for next season's championship promotion campaign um, but we're still eight months away or seven months away from that even starting so it'll be a strange strange yeah. one and it's great to see that um, that English football is, is finally given a pathway to young coaches who come through coaching at youth level just not for English coaches at all well, I bet there are pundits in Sweden saying the same thing. <laughs> I guess, yeah. So, uh, well, it, it's an interesting start, though, for um, Siebert, because taking on this Everton side who are in awful... Are they at home? Is it Huddersfield at home, yeah. Yeah, and Everton's form on the road, as we were talking about before, was it five defeats in six? And presumably, uh, Huddersfield are just going to pin everything on set pieces. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, uh, having seen the weekend game, that's probably what they'll do. I mean, a lot of Huddersfield's chances do come from set pieces, because they don't have much in open play. So uh, they're another side with a long throw expert in uh, 
Billing, mm. um, who's always quite entertaining. So I think that's one of the more interesting games from this weekend. It's not a fascinating list of fixtures, I must say, no. but I think that is one game where uh, there could be a surprise. Well, just um, a little bit more continental news, would you like, listener? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in the Germany, Michael speaking for the listener. In Germany, Dortmund won again. Did Jaden Sancho get on the score sheet? No, but he did get two assists. He's now got nine assists for the season and six goals. It was a five-one win for the Bundesliga leaders over Hanover. Meanwhile, in Italy, there was a shocking store on Sunday night, Michael, as Juventus travelled to the Stadio Olimpico to take on Lazio and went a goal down. Mm-hmm. Late on, it looked like they were finally going to be defeated. But, of course, they won 2-1. Out. Good performance from uh, Chesney. Made some great saves in the mm. first half to keep him in it. Immobile, basically, <laughs> stuffed up the chance, to, didn't he? Yeah, he did. But who didn't stuff up their chance? Uh, Quagliarella, who scored for the 11th game in a row, equaling Gabriel Batistuta's record, continuing his best season ever at the age of 35. Sampdoria maintaining their... Uh, the, the pressure on the teams above them in the hunt for a top four place Champions League next season potentially for Samp but it's tie Atalanta and Roma two of the other rivals they drew 3-3 in an absolutely spectacular game Roma was 3-0 up in that match and Atalanta came back to make it 3-3 and it's similar scenes in uh, in Verona as Chievo and, and, and Fiorentina uh, slugged it out and there was kind of VAR controversy plenty, but also goals galore and two from uh, Federico Chiesa as Fiorentina came away with a much-needed 4-3 win. Fiorentina were down at the bottom half of the table coming into the weekend and well off the, the group of teams you'd expect them to be in, the ones chasing fourth. Worse was to come in Bologna, who at home to Frosinone, the worst team in the league, a team who had been beaten 5-0. I say worst team in the league, the Kievo are worse statistically, but they are kind of the worst. <laughs> uh, Frosinone had been beaten 5-0 in their previous match by Atalanta, but they went to Bologna and beat Bologna 4-0 and you know, news is pending, but it does seem <laughs> like that's where Pippo Inzaghi gets off that particular train. Um, Bologna have got a lovely new stadium that they're oh, going to... Well, they're going to redo the Delara. So they say... I mean, Roma said that about 10 years ago and we're it? still waiting. And they could go down, couldn't they? Bologna? Oh, yeah, very much so. But Joey Saputo uh, <laughs> is going to redo... And it does look like a lovely project they've got and... The Comune, the, the, the local council, seems to be on board in I a way that Roma don't seem to have the local authorities on board. It was the, uh, their biggest player. Who? In Bologna? Signori. Oh, well, Signori. Well, they, they, they recycled. They kind of were a rehab centre for mm. loads of, um, of of stars. Signori, but also Bancho, who went Bancho, there when yeah, he did his yeah. knee and, and had an extraordinary... They, they had a whole run of great players, Bologna. Thomas Locatelli was a wonderful That's player. That's another one, yeah. Mm. I used to like Locatelli. Anyway. Ooh! Late news, Neil Lennon has been suspended by Hibbs following a full and frank discussion with the squad. Is this a new this is a new thing now, suspending managers before Yes. Well, no, but it, was Gordon, it was Gardening Leave before though, wasn't it? Yeah. They put them on Gardening Leave. So is this just a, is this just the two thousand nineteen version of Gardening Leave? I yeah. don't know. I don't know. It seems strange that we left that little nugget till the end of the show, but don't worry, you can find out much, much more about it on the Totally Scottish football show, which will be available Monday night or Tuesday morning. Uh, with all of that and more kind of things. Let's anyway now get some odds on some of the midweek action. Producer Ben has been speaking to Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. Hello, listeners. It's the part of the show that many of you have compared to Robert De Niro and Al Pacino meeting each other in heat. Yep, I'm on the line with Lee Price from Paddy Power. Lee, there's a full midweek round of games, so let's start at the top. Liverpool are taking on Leicester. Give us the first goalscorer market here and the overall, please. Yeah, Liverpool have been rocking and rolling recently, but they've had a 10-day break, a nice holiday, and they should return for this one ready to go. They're 1-6 to six in our betting, uh, heavily odds on as usual there. Leicester 12-1 to win the game, and the draw is 11-2. As for the first goal scorer market, I wonder if you can guess the top three in the betting. Of course, it's Salah, Mane and Firmino. The first Leicester player to appear is Jamie Vardy, of course, but he's down at 11-1 behind the likes of Naby Keita. It's been a terrible week for Spurs. I don't hold up much hope of them getting anything against Watford. But can I get a double, please, on the Watford result and Cardiff to beat Arsenal? Well, judging by the weekend, you might be on something with the Spurs game. The price on Watford has gradually shortened since their two results in the Cup. And punters definitely fancy Tottenham to suffer a third defeat. The Hornets are into 9-2 to to win at Wembley. Cardiff, though, are rather longer odds at Arsenal. They're 11-1. Stick those two upsets together and you get 65-1. to 
although I will say the two North London clubs remain odds-on to win their respective matches. It's a first outing for Jan Siva over at Huddersfield, and I think I pronounced that properly, uh, but what are the chances of him getting a win in this first game? Yeah, it'd be a good start, wouldn't it? And Everton are on a torrid run. Marco Silva's looking less like the new Mourinho, more like the older one. Huddersfield are 3-1 to to win this at home. Everton are even, so still the favourites. Uh, speaking of favourites, Marco Silva is now second favourite in the sack race at 3-1, to behind only the seemingly perennial favourite, Claude Powell. Paul Claude. And finally, Lee, because we've been following this tournament so closely, give us the lowdown on the Asian Cup semi-finals. Well, I'm no Sasha Gurionov, but the first semi-final I can tell you is the meeting of our two favourites of the outright market. So Iran, our overall favourites, are 5-40 to of Japan, who are 12-5 to to win that game. In the second semi, Qatar are the clear favourites to see off the UAE. Qatar 11-10, UAE 13-5. There you go. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. All prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Do you see what happened to Ajax this weekend, Michael? Daniel? Yes. Yeah. Brilliant game. Just, oh, really? Just the eight goals. That's all. Wow. So was it 6-2 <laughs> to final? Just the eight goals for me last yeah. night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, two from Van Persie as well. Oh, really? Um, who's still banging me. I think it's his last season, Van Persie. Uh-huh. He looks very much like what you would have always expected Van Persie to look like in the final season of his career. Not as mobile, hair slightly greying, but right. still a great left foot. Okay. Although he scored one with his right as well, which is unusual. Hmm. Uh, good. Someone, right. asked, someone asked us on that subject, yeah. someone asked us who are our famous one-footed players. Did you That's see that? That's true. Van Persie would probably be up there for mine. Okay. Do you have a favorite? I don't know why I'm trying to host the show. <laughs> one footer player. Come back to me. What's Michael's? That's uh, Michael. My famous, the famous one I always remember from Match of the Day was they did a two minute piece on Juan Sebastian Veron. Oh, yeah. Uh, and worked out that he'd had 101 touches and 99 of them were with his favoured really? right foot. Yes. Mm. I'd go for Quaresma just because he was <laughs> just so desperate. He'd contort his body in whichever way he could to not use his left foot, but was fantastic at doing it. I'll go for any goalkeeper in the early 90s that was having, having trouble... Uh, <laughs> Simon Tracy. Yeah, having trouble with the back pass rule. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, it's a joy to watch. If you watch a goalkeeper from that era, having a, a back pass put on the wrong foot. Panic. <laughs> Beautiful. Brilliant. Cliches does a has got a video of Simon Tracy at Sheffield United doing that. It's as if he's not seen his foot before. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it for today's show. Do hope you all have a terrific weekend, uh, midweek, sorry, and enjoy all that wonderful football. We will return on Thursday with our thoughts on what happens midweek. Duncan Alexander will be here, James Horncastle and Tom Williams as well. Uh, but for now, it's many thanks to David. When are you heading off to Sweden? Uh, I meet them in in Spain in Malaga on Wednesday. So, oh right, okay. And the, the move off. might be kind of immediate following that, or yeah. Is their current goalkeeping coach suspended or, or what's happening? No, he, he, he moved on a few weeks ago. All right, OK. Brilliant. Well, listen, David, best of luck with that. Thank you very much. Hopefully I'm not back too soon. Yeah, no, but uh, hopefully we can speak in, in the meantime. Uh, Daniel, have a great time. Hope uh, sales of your book, uh, Cantona 250 Days, Kung Fu, Man United, all that stuff going well. <laughs> Cheers. And, <laughs> and uh, can't wait till you write another one, Michael. Thanks, James. All right. Uh, excellent. All right, that's it then. Listener, you have yourselves a great time. See you Thursday. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Thanks for sticking around, listeners. As promised, here's an extract from 250 Days, Cantona's Kung Fu and the Making of Man United, the new book by Daniel Storey, out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. Day three. Good on you, Eric. Ferguson had always been predisposed to defend Cantona because of both his extraordinary talent and his tempestuous reputation. Manchester United's manager was aware when signing Cantona, that he would require a particular strand of his man-management, but he rejected the notion that the Frenchman's disciplinary problems before arriving at Old Trafford should define how he was treated. 
He had been a bit of a wayward character at his other clubs, and had gained a reputation for being unruly and difficult, Ferguson wrote, in leading. It was almost as if he was considered some sort of demon. That made no sense to me. When you are dealing with individuals with unusual talent, it makes sense to treat them differently. I just made it a point to ignore what had happened in the past and treat Eric as a new man when he joined United. Ferguson makes that sound simple. But the strategy went against the grain. Ignoring Cantona's rap sheet inevitably became a defence of it. During the period immediately after Cantona moved to United, the media regularly questioned Ferguson's decision to take on a player with such an explosive personality. After finishing only four points behind Champions League United in 1991-92, up from sixth the previous season, United only needed a slight improvement to win the league. The accusation was that Cantona risked rocking the boat so much that it might sink. In 1994, Sky Sports produced a video montage of Cantona's fouls and aggression set to music. It made Ferguson furious at the alleged victimisation of his player, although the reality is that United's manager needed no excuse to rail against the conduct of journalists, who he felt regularly threw rocks around a large glass house. Ferguson did not just give Cantona a clean slate. He treated him differently to the other players in United's squad. Ferguson usually maintained an air of authority on the training ground or on match day, but would go out of his way to talk to Cantona one-on-one -on -one every day. Recognising that the Frenchman was a sensitive personality, he would talk to him about different aspects of football relating to United and beyond, in order to ensure the player's well-being. One interesting theory, proposed by Ferguson himself, is that the Manchester United manager saw plenty of his own personality in Cantona, thus giving him added personal motivation to get the best out of him. Both had reputations for explosive anger, and both saw themselves as outsiders, non-Englishmen, attempting to lead an English sporting institution. The true explanation might well have been more simple than that. Ferguson, renowned as a pragmatist, understood that having bought a unique talent and personality, there was very little to be gained in trying to mould Cantona and risk diluting him. Do that and Manchester United might as well not have bothered at all. If Cantona's special treatment could easily have caused resentment within United's dressing room, Ferguson's dismissal of that suggestion is gloriously pithy. I did things for Eric that I did not do for them. But I don't think this was resented, because the players understood the exceptional talents had qualities they did not possess. Whether or not Ferguson's assessment was accurate is open to interpretation. In his autobiography, Mark Hughes writes that the manager had to stretch a few principles to accommodate a Frenchman who is his own man and obviously has had his problems conforming, and that while Ferguson didn't exactly rewrite the rulebook, he treated him differently. But the overwhelming sense is that the Manchester United players understood Ferguson's reasoning. That is a tribute to both the manager's man-management and their own maturity. It was Ferguson's special treatment of Cantona that made him so angry about the Frenchman's actions at Selhurst Park. Having done so much to accommodate him, Ferguson expected to at least be met halfway. Cantona had made his manager look foolish, and Ferguson certainly knew that this was not an incident that could simply be brushed away through clever manipulation of the media. Ferguson's initial reaction was that Manchester United should sack Cantona. He describes the atmosphere around the club's bigwigs as filled with an overriding sense of doom. But also meeting Sir Roland Smith and Maurice Watkins in the Edge Hotel in Orderly Edge, Cheshire, the evening after the night before. Smith and Watkins were the chairman of the club and PLC. United's share price had dropped by over 3% in 24 hours. Smith agreed with Ferguson that Cantona should be dismissed immediately, not least because neither could envisage a situation in which it was palatable for the Frenchman to play for the club again. In A Year in the Life, Ferguson's diary of that season, the manager detailed his frustration at Cantona's conduct. I have supported Eric solidly through thick and thin, but I felt that this time the good name of Manchester United demanded strong action. The club is bigger than any individual. 
I related that to the board and they agreed.